Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what it all means for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Abby Gluck is a professor of law and the founding faculty director of the Solomon Center for Health Law and Policy at Yale Law School. She is an expert on Congress and the political process, federalism, civil procedure, and health law. Among her most recent work is the most extensive empirical study ever conducted about the realities of the congressional lawmaking process, published as two articles in the Stanford Law Review. She has worked for a mayor, a governor, and a senator, but she's here today because she also worked for Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She and fellow former clerk Jillian Metzger wrote a piece in the New York Times just days after Justice Ginsburg's death, recalling her impact on them and on equality for men and women in America. Professor Gluck, thank you for joining us. And before we begin, our deepest condolences to the loss of your mentor and friend. Thank you so much. It's really a loss for all of us. Yes. Well, I believe you were at the all-night vigil last night for Justice Ginsburg. I'm I'm hoping you can kind of take us there and and describe that experience. Sure. So many people saw on television yesterday, the uh, law clerks stood outside to receive the justice's casket, which is a typical tradition, but was very striking, I think, yesterday because we covered the plaza. And first, because there are so many of us, but second, because we were social distancing for COVID. So it created quite a striking visual. And after the ceremony, there is a tradition that other justices have observed where there's an honor guard that guards the casket for the entire time it lays in the court and law clerks as a sign of honor to their boss often stand in shifts next to the casket. Mm-hmm. What we did yesterday and are still doing until tomorrow morning, actually, for the full 48 hours the casket is in the court, is that we have two law clerks that are standing by her side every single minute from the time mm-hmm. she got to the court through the night. So I was there last night at midnight and then I had another shift at 1.40 in the morning. And it's not unique. As you know, in the Jewish tradition, there is that tradition of standing by the side of the body before burial. And Mm -hmm. several people have asked me, well, is this happening because she's a Jewish justice, this part of the Jewish tradition? And it's a happy coincidence. It's not just for her. It's happened before. But it was very meaningful, I think, and, and a really special way to honor her. Well, let's talk about Justice Ginsburg's impact on you. What did you learn as her clerk? You started in July 2003, right? Yes. Can you talk about your time as her clerk, but also her impact on you going forward from that time? I mean, I think her impact on anyone she encountered is really immeasurable. As a law clerk for her, her work ethic is renowned. She works harder than anyone. I just did another interview with someone else who's a well, very well-known Supreme Court advocate who mentioned that, you know, nobody prepared more than Justice Ginsburg, even the lawyers who were preparing their cases were less prepared than she was. And as her law clerk, you could not out-prepare her. So what she taught us all was, you know, this work ethic and the idea of being incredibly careful so you can stand behind your work 100%. She instilled Mm -hmm. that in us uh, in an enormous way. Mm -hmm. The other things that she instilled with us during the clerkship were some of her signature qualities. So she was remarkably collegial in the sense that she could disagree and dissent without throwing sharp elbows or causing fights and remaining Mm -hmm friendly and close with her colleague. She's obviously an independent thinker. She also had just an amazing 
life outside the court. You know, she basically filled her entire day. She would work until 8 p.m. She would go to the opera, then she would come back and work some more. And she sort of showed you how to have this incredibly full life where you could work hard and, you know, she wouldn't use your play hard, but, you know, fill your life with all the things you love in every aspect. And, And then the last thing I'll say about my time there is that her relationship with her husband was, as I said before, one for the ages. And you could not work for her without seeing that relationship. She would have birthday parties for every law clerk in her office and her husband, Marty, would bake us a cake. They were such equal partners. He was her biggest booster. Her stories through the ages were all about how they supported one another at different times in their career. It was really an amazing experience for a young person. I was newly married at the time to see that kind of marriage and learn from it. So did she maintain a relationship with her clerks after their terms in the court were up? Oh, absolutely. It was sort of remarkable and it got stronger and stronger and deeper and deeper every year. I would say that with every passing year, I felt closer and closer and closer to her, which is just amazing. Mm -hmm. After you walked out the door to that courthouse, uh, you just kept coming back. I visited her almost every year. My children came to visit her. Uh, My daughter's name is Ruth, which is a happy coincidence. She would always uh, put aside all of this Ruth stuff that she got from people. And so she would remember, and whenever I came to Chambers, she would have a little bag for my little Ruth. But it's just a sign of just how considerate she was uh, and how much she thought about her law clerks. And I'm sure you've heard she used to send all of her law clerks RBG grand clerk T-shirts when new babies were born. (laughs) She she was this woman that was incredibly tough. I I think the toughest justice on the court. And yet every once in a while, as she would say herself, she turned into a Jewish bubby. (laughs) Well, now you opened your column in The New York Times with a line from one of her last oral arguments on a case about access to contraception under the Affordable Care Act. She authored the dissent, I believe, in July. And in that dissent, she said it left women to fend for themselves. Did she influence your specialty in health law in any way? I had an interest in health law before I got to the Supreme Court um, because my own mother had passed away of cancer when I was in law school. And Justice Ginsburg and I did not talk that much about health law, actually. I see those cases. The ACA cases are very important. I specialize in that in my daily life. I see her role in that case really much bigger than the ACA case. I see that her role in that case as a gender equality case. And the last one in a steady stream of cases in which she's relentlessly thinking about how seemingly neutral things discriminate against and deeply affect the lives of women. And that contraception case, which was an intersection of religious freedom law and contraception, I think really symbolized that. You know, she's gotten a lot of attention, of course, for her dissenting opinions. Which ones do you believe did indeed have the most impact in terms of shaping society? Her dissents are incredibly famous. I mean, the one that made her really famous was her Voting Rights Act dissent in Shelby County. And that's the one that earned her the moniker Notorious RBG, you know, objecting to the Supreme Court's attempt to curtail the Voting Rights Act's protections. I actually am really drawn to some of the earlier dissents, particularly during the time when she was the only female justice sitting on the court. I think Mm. that she issued some really powerful dissents that made her voice for gender equality even louder on the court. She was obviously this path-marking trailblazer in the 1970s in her gender equality cases. And then she got to the court and she was a junior justice and she wrote a lot of really great opinions and she wrote one very important majority opinion, VMI, about same-sex public education at a military institute. But, you know, 
she hadn't had some major gender opinions until around that time when she found herself sitting there by herself. And the descents that I am most drawn to are those where we see her speaking up. The Carhartt descent, to me, is the most powerful one. That was about the validity of the Federal Partial Birth Abortion Act bill. And Justice Kennedy's opinion for the court took this incredibly paternalistic stance toward women that said that this bill is a great idea, the statute should be lawful, because women are going to come to regret the abortions they have, and we need to protect women from the decisions they're going to make. And Justice Ginsburg's dissent was so powerful, and it basically says, thanks, but no thanks. We can make these decisions for ourselves. And then she goes through reams of empirical evidence about how Justice Kennedy's concerns were grounded in nothing. That dissent to me, when I read it, I thought, wow, this is her voice. Here she is. Right around that time, there was a very powerful oral argument that involved a strip search of a teenage girl for ibuprofen in the gym at her school. Mm -hmm. And it was a very invasive strip search where the girl's underwear and bra were shaken out and she was made to sit half naked in the hall for a couple of hours. And oral argument took a wrong turn. It got a little too jocular. And some of the justices, the male justices, again, because she was the only female justice on the court, were kind of joking around about locker room play. I think she looked around and said, what is going on here? I'm the only one here. And she spoke up and she said, excuse me, this is not locker room play. And she said, shaking out a little girl's bra and making her sit for two hours is an abuse of authority. You know, I think she convinced the court to go in her direction. We could keep talking about many other dissents. There are so many that I would love to talk about. Certainly, none of this is a waste of time. I'm sure we could talk for hours. But I am curious how she did, even if she was in the dissenting, on the dissenting side of arguments. I mean, did she change the culture of the court in any way? especially by speaking up in oral arguments like she did that day? Um, Look, our Supreme Court right now is a pretty hot bench. And the younger justices that came on after her talk a lot in oral arguments. In the time that I was on the court with her, which was before that time when she was alone on the bench, she spoke a lot, but so did Justice Breyer, so did Justice Scalia. So I think she's right in there with them. I don't think that she changed their culture and made the bench more gregarious. I do think that there are some very important ways in which she interacted with her colleagues that had a really salutary interest on the culture of the court. But before I talk about that, I also want to say that I think the court has always had that special something in which the justices become friends and can remain friends even after enormous differences. When I was clerking, she and Justice Scalia did a cameo appearance at the Kennedy Center, which was just hilarious. And she brought the law clerks, but she also brought Justice Thomas and his stepchild. And they were in a box seat. And that was just fabulous. And her relationship with Justice Scalia was very well known. And she also became very fond of the late Chief Justice Rehnquist, in part because of her admiration, not only for his ability to run the court, but her admiration for his open and changing mind. Justice Rehnquist moved in the direction of gender equality in his opinions over time. And Justice Ginsburg often commented on how much she respected, how he kept an open mind and sort of evolved with the times. And they had this enormous personal affection. The big one, of course, uh, is Justice Scalia. What they did for each other, what they modeled for the world is just extraordinary. One is a story that is well known after Bush versus Gore, the very difficult 2000 election case in which Justice Ginsburg lost, right? Her opinion was not the winning opinion. Justices have been working around the clock for days. And it's, a, it's well known that Justice Scalia came down after the opinion came out to check on her, send her home to take mm-hmm. a bath and get something to eat. 
that, that he was caring for her and that they were caring for each other during that time. I mean, mm-hmm. there's another great story that was retold recently by Justice Scalia's son. So if I get it wrong, but the story said something like this, that another well-known federal judge was visiting Justice Scalia one day uh, and saw some roses in his office and asked if they were for his wife. And Justice Scalia said, no, they're for Ruth. It's for her birthday. The judge said, how many votes have all those years of roses Justice Ginsburg bought you? And Justice Scalia said, some things are much more important than votes. But I think it really encapsulates how they felt about each other. The fact they traveled together, they, just, they modeled this way of disagreement but friendship mm-hmm. that the country needs so much right now. Well, and I was going to say, how do, we, how do we bottle that and distribute it in Washington? Something about the court. I think the court has a couple of really wonderful features. One is sort of the new term and the break. It's sort of like this fresh start. You know, and I think that helps the the new new generations of law clerks coming in every year, I think, contribute to that. You get this fresh start every July where as difficult as the last term is or maybe you get to start over. And I think that's helpful. But I also think that the justices know how precious the institution is and they do what they can to guard it and its integrity. Part of that is their collegiality and the care with which they treat one another. So I also found it interesting just kind of going back to her opinions and her approach He didn't really like the term women's rights. She talked about equality, equal protection demanded by both men and women. That was her big innovation. So in the 1970s, there was sort of the split in the women's rights movement in thinking about whether women should get different treatment because of being women or exactly the same. And Justice Ginsburg did not like what she called pedestal treatment. Mm -hmm. She used this term full and equal citizenship stature, right? Mm -hmm. She wanted men and women to be treated exactly the same. And that's why part of her strategy in the 1970s, a very winning strategy, was to use male plaintiffs, not female plaintiffs, who were Mm -hmm. in unusual gender roles for the time, like a father who wanted to stay home with his kids, and to argue that benefits that a woman would get during the same circumstances, he should get too. It was Mm -hmm. all about her vision of equality, and also, I think, in retrospect, really about her vision of the American family. So many of these, and the workplace, right? Mm -hmm. So many of these cases were about men performing counter gender stereotype roles, supporting Mm -hmm. women in their jobs. And it is an idealization of her vision of what a truly equal society of men and women as parents and partners could look like. So can you talk a little bit about how Judaism shaped Justice Ginsburg's judicial life or her personal life? Justice Ginsburg has this great line that she used in most of her Jewish speeches, and it goes like this. I am a judge born, raised, and proud of being a Jew. The demand for justice runs through the entirety of the Jewish tradition. I hope in my years on the bench, on the court, I will have the strength and the courage to remain constant in the service of that demand. And it's a beautiful line. And she said it over and over and over again and often began her speeches like that. And I think it says a lot. She was not incredibly observant, but she was incredibly culturally and intellectually Jewish. You know, as a young child, she went to Jewish camp. She wrote this great essay as a teenager about the Holocaust that's recently been resurfaced. It's widely known that she was sort of disillusioned uh, when her mother died on the eve of her high school graduation and she wasn't counted for the minion. But apart from that, sort of the Jewish values, both of debate but of justice, sort of rang through everything she did. She had a sign on her wall with Sedek Sedek Terdof, you know, that famous line, justice, justice shall you pursue so that you may thrive. She used that line 
everywhere. She had a mezuzah on her door that was given to her uh, by a former law clerk who went to the Shalamet School for Girls, a Orthodox girls school in Brooklyn. And the Jewish values of debate, of justice, of protecting outsiders were incredibly important to her. She often said that she thought that being Jewish gave her something of an outsider's perspective. She experienced some aspects of discrimination as a young woman, as a Jewish woman. Uh, there's a story about, and I, I have not heard this from justice firsthand, but I read it in other places, that at Cornell in college, the Jewish girls were grouped together in one part of the dorm. Those early experiences in her life gave her an appreciation for being an outsider, of course, together with her many experiences being discriminated against as a woman. And I think she carried them with her and the obligation to make society more fair and more just throughout. She also wrote some important opinions that were about religion. So I do think some of the religious freedom cases that she was on the opposing side of, you know, maybe not might not have appealed to all Jewish people, but she strove for a vision of religious neutrality. There was a case last year called American Legion that involved a very large cross on a piece of public property. And Justice Ginsburg wrote a dissent for herself and Justice Sotomayor, very, very strong dissent, mm -hmm. in which she said, by maintaining a peace cross on the public highway, this town elevates Christianity over other faiths, religion over non-religion. And she emphasized that the cross, although it seemed like a neutral symbol for a town to the other justices, she said, the cross is not neutral at all, right? And I think that she brought that perspective to the bench in the same way that she brought that female perspective to the bench, often as one of the few, you know, non-Christian persons on the court. So in your opinion, why did she become such a phenomenon, such an icon for women across generations in her octogenarian years when she was in her 80s? Was it her? Was it the circumstances? Was it a mixture of both? It's pretty remarkable. I think that um, in the 70s, obviously, she was recognized as sort of the Thurgood Marshall of the gender movement. And then she got to the court and she was quieter when she was on the court in the earlier years because she was the most junior justice and then the second most junior justice after Justice Breyer. And the junior justices don't get the big opinions, right? It took a while. So when I clerked for her, obviously, it was amazing to clerk for Justice Ginsburg, but it wasn't like clerking for Madonna the way it would be clerking for her right now. It was just unextraordinary to see this, this sort of star power emerge around her and her becoming an icon for little girls and sort of hard to piece together how it happened. I do think part of it was those dissents around 2007, 2008, 2009, when she was there alone, she started really speaking very loudly again on gender. And I think there was no one on the court who was doing that. Gender equality has always been there. It's always been a hugely important part of our constitutional development. But it's not the kind of thing that people are talking about every day when it comes to the Supreme Court. Yes, we're talking about abortion a lot in the law, but she's talking about all different kinds of gender equality, discrimination in the workplace, right? Discrimination in strip searches of little girls, and of course, you know, issues involving reproductive choice. I think her voice gets louder, people start noticing her again, and this sort of next generation starts to pay attention. Yeah. And then this very famous dissent from the Voting Rights Act case happens, and this young woman makes a meme of her, and it goes viral. It just sort of exploded into something where yesterday, standing vigil at the court, there were so many little girls of all races uh, dressed up like her, holding signs with her famous quotes about gender equality. I mean, it was really just an extraordinary thing to see.
Do you mind sharing what your last encounter was with Justice Ginsburg? The last, well, I, you know, she's an amazing letter writer and uh, email responder. And so I definitely have had some email and written correspondence with her over the last year. But Mm -hmm. I was thinking back, I think the last time I saw her in person was last summer. I usually go visit her, you know, at the end of the term because she's so busy during the term. So I tend to try to visit her around May or June. And I'm pretty sure I went to visit her last year, May or June. And we had a terrific visit. I had booked about 15 minutes of her time and wound up staying in there for an hour and a half as she... (laughs) munched a bagel for lunch and we talked about everything from the law to my job to the kids to you know the world and then of course I got a bag of books about why not to be a princess to give to my little Ruthie because she had been putting them aside uh, for her. <laughs> how old is your Ruthie my Ruthie is eight Okay. <laughs> and she's not named for Justice Ginsburg. Uh, in the Jewish tradition, we would not name her for someone who was alive. But my mother's name is Ruth, so it happens to be a wonderful coincidence. That is a wonderful coincidence. Well, Professor Gluck, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. My deepest condolences again. But wow, what a legacy and what a privilege that you've got to work so closely with her. Thank you so much. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat table this week is Remco Limhus, director of the AJC Berlin Raymer Institute. Remco, when you're talking with your family this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? So this close to Yom Kippur, I'm obviously thinking about the terror attack on the synagogue that occurred last year in the city of Halle. And I guess everybody is aware of what happened that day. But while I guess we and I thought a lot about this very dark day and the pure evil we saw. Today, I'm mostly thinking about the brave victims that have testified in court against the terrorist that currently stands trial. I think that it not only takes a lot of courage to look the terrorist in the eye and not be intimidated, but I also think that it is inspiring to see them speak up for themselves and share their story. And I hand it over to Manya. Remco, I remember talking to you the morning after that happened and how utterly exhausted you were. I, too, applaud the courage of the survivors and witnesses and hope justice is done. Sefi, Remco, at our Shabbat table this week, we will be discussing Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg of Blessed Memory and tennis. You see, my son Max is taking tennis lessons on Friday afternoons now, and every week it's a mad scramble to wrap up my work, grab his racket, water bottle, and sneakers, and get both kids out the door. Then, back home an hour later for Shabbat dinner. So, tennis will be on our minds. My daughter Rose is itching to play with her brother, and when she's old enough, we'll give tennis a try. In New Jersey, where we live, Ruth Bader Ginsburg happened to play a small role in making sure Rose can play tennis. One of the many stories about RBG's legacy this week included one by New York Times sports writer Andrew Kay. He tracked down Abby Selden of Cape Cod, Massachusetts, who at the age of 15 in 1972 sued officials with the state of New Jersey and her high school in Teaneck because there was no tennis for girls. No girls team, no co-ed team, no tennis for girls. When her family contacted the ACLU, the organization connected her with a young Rutgers law professor and volunteer who had just co-founded the ACLU's Women's Rights Project, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She and a colleague represented the family in a lawsuit, charging that the rules barring Abby and other girls from competing alongside boys violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Now, over time, the state of New Jersey agreed to allow girls to try out for boys' teams, and the lawsuit was dropped. Doors across the state swung open for young female athletes. But sadly, things didn't get easier for Abby. 
She joined the team, just as she had hoped to, but the boys were cruel and faced no consequences for that cruelty. During a team workout, one of them caused her to tumble down a flight of stairs, leaving her bruised and unwilling to go back. It didn't stop her from playing. She fought for and won a scholarship to Syracuse and became a certified tennis pro at age 21. At 64, with two titanium knees, she still plays today. Now, what struck me about Abby's recollection is that she's pretty sure she and RBG never met in person. They shared four long phone conversations, and even from those, she only remembers bits and pieces. What she does remember is the encouragement and the reassurance from the kind, soft-spoken woman on the other end of the line who was fighting for her. Now, Max has started first grade, and his teacher sends several emails a day to communicate with the students and their parents. The tagline on those emails is the famous Maya Angelou quote, People will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but they will never forget how you made them feel. I love that my son is learning that notion early in life, because as this story illustrates, it's true. Now, of course, this week, we remember what Ruth Bader Ginsburg said and did. But next week, many will go back to taking it for granted. Girls will grab their rackets and take to the courts blissfully unaware that there was a time when they couldn't. At our Shabbat table, we will keep reminding our kids that equality and democracy are the results of hard-fought rallies on the court and in the courts. And that's what we'll talk about at our Shabbat table this week. Sefi? Well, I was shocked to read this week in The Guardian's obituary for Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg that she had, quote, left Judaism at age 17. I expect that the justice would have been shocked as well. This is a person, after all, who sent her kids to Hebrew school, who was a member of a synagogue throughout her life, and who hung a mezuzah on the door of her chambers at the Supreme Court. Left Judaism? This is a person who, on three walls of those chambers, hung the quote from Deuteronomy, Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdof, Justice, justice, shalt thou pursue. Left Judaism? This is a person who traveled to Israel many times in her life, developing friends and relationships in the Jewish state. Left Judaism? This is a person who said of herself in 1995, shortly after joining the Supreme Court, I am a judge, born, raised, and proud of being a Jew. The demand for justice runs through the entirety of the Jewish religion. I hope in my years on the bench of the Supreme Court of the United States, I will have the strength and courage to remain constant in the service of that demand. She said that in a speech to AJC in 1995 and worked with us to have it published in a full-page ad in the New York Times in 96, part of a series called What Being Jewish Means to Me. Left Judaism? Justice Ginsburg would revisit that quote numerous times, sharing it in speeches at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial and Museum in 2004, and most recently, in a speech at Philadelphia's Museum of American Jewish History, which hosted an exhibit on her life and achievements. Left Judaism? Yesterday, the memorials of her life began at the Supreme Court. In what must have been a coincidence, but feels like divine providence, the ceremony lasted 18 minutes, the number corresponding to the word chai, life, in Jewish numerology. Two people spoke, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Ginsburg's rabbi, Lauren Holtzblatt. Left Judaism? Rabbi Holtzblatt opened by chanting Psalm 23 and closed with the Kel Malera Samim, the Jewish prayer for the souls of the departed. These are staples of the most traditional 
Jewish funerals. Left Judaism, Justice Ginsburg left the world with a deep commitment to her Judaism. So no, The Guardian, Ruth Bader Ginsburg didn't leave Judaism as a teenager. She was, in her own words, a judge born, raised, and proud of being a Jew. Yehi zichrona baruch, may the memory of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg hashofetet yita rachel bat nosen v'tzirolea before a blessing. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our assistant producer is Atara Lakritz. And our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.